0: message time this morning, if you need a Bible, uh, we have ushers with Bibles, and just raise your hand, and they will bring you one, Um, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 16, and I'd encourage you to go there, we're actually going to start a little bit in 15, but I'm going to recap a little bit, Um, just so you know, I was flipping through my Bible just this morning, and, and I flipped two pages, three one. Three pages, there it is, and it was the end of the Bible. So just so you know, I'm not going to tell you how many more weeks are left, but in three pages, we're done with this series. We've been on this series for a while now. Thank you all for sticking with it. It's been a lot of fun for me to, to just discover the meat and the meaning of this book, and I hope it's been fun for you. And if you've missed any weeks, we have them on our podcast or up on our website that you could definitely go back. And and look at. But let's recap a little bit uh, today. I just want to remind, maybe some of you haven't been with us through the whole series, so I just want to give you this little picture of where we're at. Revelation 4 and 5 is the theological meat of this book. That's the steak dinner of this book. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 is God sitting on his throne, holding a scroll, this completely sealed up. It's got seven seals. And no one can open it, and, and, and John, the writer of the book of Revelation, is there, and he begins to weep, he's sad, he cries, because no one can open the scroll, because he intrinsically knows that that scroll is God's purposes on earth as they are in heaven. It, it, that It is the new creation that, that's just begging to be brought forth. That John, he knows that that scroll is God's will for humanity. He knows that that scroll is immensely important. But then he, he hears a, he a lion. and then he turns and sees a lamb. And, and it's a lamb that is acting as if it had, or looks as if it had been slain. And that lamb is Jesus. And, and that lamb is the one who's able to open the scroll. And as that scroll opens, as those seals get popped off, as Jesus opens it, one of the things that we see is that there's these forces of darkness that hate this plan. And it's part of this crumbling world that's that's sort of attached itself to sin. And and the author John there calls this Babylon. He calls this crumbling world, which is a lot of references to Rome, he calls it Babylon. And and there's this crumbling world, but then there's this lamb and all of his followers coming, and they begin to meet each other. And and I'm not going to, there's so much to recap that I'm not going to recap all of it. But some of you might remember there were seven seals that were open, and a quarter of the earth was destroyed. And then there were seven trumpets that were blown, and then a third of the earth is destroyed. And then today we're looking at the seven bold judgments, and the rest of the destroyers of the earth are destroyed. And that's the idea. When you have these two competing worlds, God has to bring this new plan to order. God has to bring his new creation, and this is what John is saying, is this is what it's like when God brings his new creation into into being. The old stuff has to pass away, and there are some people who have dreadfully tied themselves to the old system of life. And today, we're going to talk about something we talked a little bit about last week, but it's not fun to talk about. You don't hear pastors talking about it too much anymore, and, and I know that for me, it's not like the, the number one topic that I love talking about, but it's the wrath of God. But it's important that we talk about it because wrath is part of God's um, love, it's part of his fundamental love for his kids, and it's also part of ours. and like I said, um, like I said last week, it's seen most clearly when you have kids when I I didn't understand wrath until Emma was born. I really didn't. I, I, I didn't understand it at all. And, and I knew love, but I didn't get wrath until she was there in my arms. Because if somebody were to touch her or hurt her or something like that, I mean, I'd be calling Joanne saying, how much money do we have to bail me out of prison? I mean, she's so... Um, She would be my number one, not my wife. I would call our treasurer and be like, hey, (laughs) I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, Because I know that I have to protect my kids. And I think that's the response that God has too. God sees all of us as his kids, and he hates it. He hates it when we're mean to each other. He hates it when, you know, it's, it's like it hurts him. You know, if I see somebody picking on my kid, I I just, uh, you know, even if they're wrong, even if my child is wrong and they're the one who started it, I'm like, uh, don't, you know, I want to jump in. It hurts me. There's this wrath element, uh, you know, dad coming out. And I said last week, it's like that Liam Neeson speech. When I think of wrath, I think of like the Liam Neeson, like I have a very particular set of skills. I will come and get you. You know if you let her go right now it 's fine by the way, like i okay so i haven 't seen that movie since it came out, but if you let him go right now it 's fine you 're not gonna you 're not going at least call the French police or something anyways um, hole in the plot my point my point is the wrath is because you love something so much, you love somebody so much, and that 's my little I guess, folk theologian explanation of it. And I'm not a formidable force. I'll tell you what, if any of you wanted to fight me, you would win. I am a terrible fighter. It's true, so don't, don't try and fight me. I'd be like, you win. Take, here's my wallet. Um, but mess with my kids, and it's like UFC, you know. Is that right, UFC? Anybody? Is that right? Like, okay. Okay, I don't know. I don't watch that stuff either. It hurts me to, like, watch them beat them. I know some of you guys love that stuff, but I'm like, oh, man, that, that looks like it hurts. Um, so let's get into this this morning. Um, I'm actually going to start reading in Revelation 14 some stuff that we read last week. Ver- and we're going to start at verse 5. Um, because verse 5, whenever you see in the book of Revelation where, where they use the word um, open, like I saw something open that denotes a new section and that's one of the way that John John one of the ways that John writes there's like this open I saw something open then you know it's something brand new after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened out of the temple came the seven angels and the seven plagues and they were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest then one of the four living creatures Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went out and poured out his first bowl on the land and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and it became blood. Then I heard an angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood out of your holy people and your holy prophets and have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared with the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had the control over these plagues but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony out and cursed the God of heaven because their pains were sores but they ref- their pains and their sores but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and his water was dried up to, pre- to prepare the way of the kings from the east. And I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and wonders and they go out from the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and does not, and remains clothed and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, clothed so not to go naked to be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together at the place in the Hebrew, which is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a severe earthquake, no earthquake like it has ever, been, has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the huge, <clears throat> from the huge hailst- uh, sky hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Kind of depressing scripture, right? Like, that wasn't the most exciting, fun scripture to read. Like, you came to church today, you were like, man, Pastor Dave bummed me out. You know, I, I <laughs> maybe I haven't been to church in a while, this is just the biggest bummer scripture I've ever heard. This isn't an easy text. And part of me wishes, that, you know, I have a whiteboard, and I almost thought, You know, if I just spent 20 minutes on a whiteboard, they would get it better. Um, But I would probably spend three hours on that whiteboard, and so it's probably not a great idea. I think we have a hard time with judgment as a church, as people, really, not just as a church. We have a difficult time with judgment. We we actually take judgment and, and we attribute it to vengeance. That's what we think of. In our minds, we think of vengeance. In, judgment, in God's mind, judgment is simply making things right, that were wrong. It's making the wrong things right. We think of a God who's got to pay us back for every little thing, big and small. But I, but I think we, we misidentify what judgment is by calling it vengeance. So ju- judgment is not vengeance. One of the things I want to mention here is that the plagues, if you've been with us through this whole time, the plagues are really similar to the seven uh, seals, to the seven bowls, and um, I'm sorry, to the seven trumpets and all that stuff. And, and there even is a theory that they're all the same plagues, just looked at from three different perspectives. One from the church, one from um, uh, the earth uh, or the unbelievers, and one from the throne room. And, and I'm like 65% on that theory. I, I don't really know if that's right or not. Um, I've read a few different theologians who say, yes, absolutely. And then I read a couple that's like, no, it can't be that. So it's, that's, that's what you get when you study the book of Revelation, by the way. So I want to help us to understand some of these plagues. But I also want to tell you they're the same as a lot of the other ones, and so we're not going to go over them as in depth as I've gone over all of them before. So turn with me to 16 verses 4 through 6 the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, holy one. You who are and who were, for they have shed blood of your, the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So what I like about this, what's interesting about this, the first three plagues, are all repeats of other plagues. And what they are is a repeat of Egypt. It's a retelling of the story of Egypt, the plagues of Egypt. And, and they all have this turning water into blood type of thing going on. But at the very end of verse 6, here's what it says. It says that that blood that, that, was, that you spilt, O oh earth, O oh sinful people, the people who belong to the beast, the blood that you spilt now is giving back to you to drink. And I know that's a disgusting image, but really what God is trying to say here is that judgment simply, in in many ways, is humanity reaping what it sowed. Does that make sense? It's humanity reaping what it sows. God is simply giving people exactly what they built. And so many times our human systems collapse on each other, right? Right? I mean, when you think about something like the Third Reich, Hitler, and all that stuff, like he built this, this, what seemed like a new empire, and it seemed like, you know, if you look at history, you're like, man, this guy was going to take over the world, but eventually it all collapsed in on itself. It was built on sinful ideologies. It was built on oppression and hurting people. And so maybe God's judgment for him was simply reaping what he had sown. So I'm not entirely sure. But God's judgment so many times is that we get back exactly what we've given. That's why the good news of Jesus dying on the cross is such good news because I don't know if I could stand to, have, to take back exactly what I've given. Because there's, I've messed up on stuff. I'm a sinful person. I've screwed up. And I, can't, I don't know if I can handle getting all that back to me. Except for Jesus has covered me with his sin. And on that day of judgment, God looks at people in two different ways. People who are not covered by that and people who are. I love, it's interesting what Jesus says about this judgment. By the way, this is a verse that many people have mistaken for an offering verse, which is not exactly the best way to use this verse. Luke 6, 37 through 38, it'll be up on the screen. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give it, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running all over, will be poured into your lap. For with this measure um, you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is reminding the church, this is why we don't judge. God's the judge. We're not the judge. God's the judge. And if you start wanting to do all that judging, then I'll come back and just use that same measure you used. That same measuring stick you used to judge somebody else, I'll use it to judge you. How does that sound? Ouch, right? (laughs) That hurts. So what Jesus is trying to say here is, when we judge others, you too will be judged. So it's interesting also to note that through all five of the plagues, no one repents that the point even of these plagues was to get people to repent. Now, you you have to imagine everything that happened up until this point. There was the witnesses, there was the, the church eating the scroll and becoming this whole repentant community, becoming a community of the Lamb, taking on the characteristics of the Lamb. And many people came to know the Lamb through this, but still there's this group of people that have been identified as followers of the beast that 666, that are wholly incomplete and, and still they don't repent. So even these judgments are God saying, come on, I, this is last resort stuff. I want you to come into relationship with me. But why does no one still repent? Because you become what you worship. You become what you worship. The mark of the beast penetrates their soul. The truth of the matter is, Like I said, we become what we worship, and that's important for us and why we come here each week. That's why we come here. We want to become more like Jesus, and that's why we worship Jesus, because we want to become more like him, more forgiving, more trustworthy, more honest, more loving. That's why we come here, because we want to be shaped by him. We want to be shaped by this community, and we want to become more like Jesus, that's why we worship him. But these people, unfortunately, have their lives so deeply formed by the beast that they can't get out of that, that cycle. No matter how much Jesus is begging them to come with me, they won't do it. They simply won't do it. Let's look at verse 12 here, the sixth plague. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out, of, oh, they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle. On the great day of God Almighty, look, I come like a thief, blesses the Lord, stays awake and remains clothed. As to not go out naked and be shamefully exposed, then they gathered the kings. Uh, then they gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. So what this is saying is that these three unclean frogs came out of the mouth of the beast to gather all the wicked kingdoms. It's simply saying these unclean blasphemies. That the, that the beast has been spewing out. These unclean words that, that they've been spewing out is coming to gather all these people. And a few weeks ago, we, we remember we were on this hill. There was Mount Zion, and Jesus, the lamb, was leading all of his followers. And then meeting him for battle was this 666 group with all of his followers, was the beast and all of his followers. And so we now have this picture in our minds of these two groups that are competing, meeting against each other. And it says this battle is happening at Armageddon, which actually is Armageddon. It's the way to pronounce it. There's no, um, that's the way to pronounce it in the Greek. And so they're meeting at Armageddon. And it's interesting, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, we could trace the exact spot where this is in Israel. We know exactly where this is, we know exactly where it's going to happen. In fact, I, I was on a trip where people told me, this is it. You're standing in it right now. But, the, I mean, you could deduce some things, but the, the actual problem is when you look at a map, when you understand the history there, there, there is no place called Harmageddon or Armageddon in Israel right now. It's actually a makeup of two names. And there's, it's actually really important for interpretation that we get this. It's made up of two names, har it's a way of saying it's a valley and a mountain. And so there's no place that exists that's a valley and a mountain. But there's three crucial points here. One, there's no name in the Middle East called Armageddon, so um, we have got to take it symbolically. Jesus is calling. Um, the name Armageddon is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Har and Megiddo, which is the Mount of Megiddo. We know that's a place 60 miles north of Jerusalem called Uh, near Mount Carmel known as Megiddo, but it is just a mountain. It's not a plain as well. But there were battles fought there, which is interesting. In 2 Kings 23, Judah was defeated by Egypt. So Israel was defeated by Egypt. And one of the things that we've looked at all through the book of Revelation is, is that this idea of Egypt, Egypt was like the earliest beast. It was the earliest Babylon. And Israel was defeated by Babylon already. The people of God were defeated there. And so one of the things I think this verse is trying to tell us is that there's going to be this great reversal of history. That there's this battle at Armageddon. In other words, it's it's code for the church saying, you remember where Israel lost all these battles? We're now going to go and reverse this history. Jesus is the victor. Jesus will win these battles now. So is it a physical place? I'm not really sure. But I think what the thrust of Scripture is trying to say is that God will restore his people. God will reverse the tide. Uh, in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. I love this. This plague is really interesting. and I don't know if it's okay to say it's my favorite plague, um, but it's my favorite plague. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's okay, but it's my favorite plague because of this. There's some commentators that, that talk about how this plague cleansed the air. And, and when you look at the beast in the past, the beast, you know, from a few chapters ago, was polluting the air with all of its blasphemies. And all of its false talkings about Jesus and all of its false worship and, and things like that. And imagine, kind of like, we know what air pollution is, right? We live in L.A. I mean, I was driving in from, <laughs> I was driving in from um, the desert this weekend and I thought, I was like, man, this is bad. You know, it's just like this cloud of, uh, of smog uh, covering, you know, where I live. I'm not sure if there's another fire going or something like that. But we know what that's like, especially when there's a fire. We, we know that feeling of thickness and smog. And it's almost like God saying, I'm dumping out this judgment to kill all those blasphemies and make the air clear. I just, I love that imagery in that picture. It's saying, it is done. I'm even cleansing your blasphemies. And what does air touch? Everything, right? What does it cover? All of the earth. So God's judgment is on everything that has been polluted by the beast. The fresh air of the lamb becomes the air that we breathe. I want to talk for a few minutes on judgment. I mean, that's my brief, uh, again, I could spend three hours on this chapter just breaking stuff down, but that's my brief exegesis of that. But I want to talk a few minutes on judgment. Like I said, judgment is so tough for many of us, but it's also a really good thing for many of us. But for so many people, it's a terrible thing to have their fate tied to the beast and to be forever separated from God. One of the points that the Bible makes is that we're all deeply connected to each other. And I think what's really interesting is we saw that this week, right? We, I mean, when you see the violence and, and just awful things happening, it's like you feel there's, there's something in your heart when you're watching the news. It's like, ah, oh, it like, feels like your heart is being ripped out. Well, the Bible tells us the reason why that is and it's because we're all deeply connected and held together by Jesus. All of humanity is interwoven together. And this is important when we talk about judgment, I think. Because sin affects everybody. In ways that we might not notice, but sin affects everybody. Take my example of air pollution. It's not sinful to drive your car. I mean, I I have a big car cuz I've got a big family and it's probably a polluting vehicle and uh, that's that's you know definitely better than the ones of the past, but that hey we had smog days. It hurts to breathe when I was a kid. I mean you know exactly what this is like. That affects everybody. So take that even as an example. But our sin begins to affect everywhere. And like I said, said this is apparent with every senseless act of violence in the United States. But the scriptures say that we are bound together. And I guess what I want um, to get at with judgment is that when you look at the whole story of Scripture and ask who is being judged in Scripture constantly, over and over and over again, what do we see? Who does God defeat in the Bible consistently? The answer gets really, really clear. God's heart is for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. God's heart is for the one who, who follows him the one who gives their life over to Jesus. That's who God's heart is for. So as the oppressed Israelites flee Egypt, the oppressor gets judged in the Red Sea. God comes against them. He makes right what was wrong. He gives Israel a place. You see the prophets going to the kings of Israel saying, Just a few years after that, well, a number of years after that, the kings of Israel begin to grow in their power. And, And we've talked about this a bunch, where some of the kings of Israel, mainly Solomon, begin to buy arms from Egypt and become one of the biggest Middle Eastern arms dealers. He begins to have all these foreign wives and begins to worship all these false gods. And then Solomon is called the forced labor king of Israel. In other words, the new pharaoh of Israel. And a few years after Solomon's reign, you see kings descending more and more and more and more into that. So the person, the group that was oppressed became oppressors. We have to be careful not to allow our, you, our freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom that we've been given. We have to be careful not to become oppressors. But that's exactly what happened. And I think the point, one of the points of Israel's greater story is that they themselves became oppressors he had all the gold all the silver and he literally turned into egypt and god even judged his own people using babylon that the oppressor israel was taken away into captivity and brought back humbled like i said we have to be careful not to use our freedom to turn into ourselves into oppressors Because the scriptures tell us that we're deeply connected to all of humanity. The oppressors are the ones with their own agendas. The oppressors are the ones who search after human power. The oppressors are the ones who take on the image of the beast. The oppressors claim to love Jesus, yet do not love their neighbor. So I have this sneaking suspicion that one day, on the day of judgment, It'll go very badly for people who oppress others. And for people who don't, for people who are marked by, by the image of the lamb, they will have really loved their neighbors. They would have really loved the oppressed. They would have really, and, and we have to remember at this point, the church is the oppressed when we're talking about the book of Revelation. We have to really love other people. I don't think it'll go so bad for us. If, you, if that's really you, if you're really marked by the image of the Lamb. Point two, and this is the last point. Judgment reminds us that the story doesn't go on forever. And, and this is really good news if you lived in first century Israel because most of the world narrative at this time, like world history narrative, was it like, there's these religions and everything is circular and it just goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. But, but in Christianity, it was like, no, there's an end point. There's a stopping point. Judgment's coming. And there is a point for that. And, and there's this really interesting verse. It's almost like John, was, as he was writing, he went back to the church and started because he, he literally steals this line word for word from his earlier writing. And he uses Jesus' word. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. It's taken right from the church of Sardis. And it's almost like this weird point in the scripture. John is like, wake up. This is really happening. God really is going to come back. God really is going to judge his people. All people. And... Believe it or not, this is good news. All of us are accountable for how we live and how we worship and who we worship. God knows our heart and our tendency to oppress other people. But God sets things right. Wake up. Wouldn't you love to go back to your 16-year-old self and just, yeah, yes. (laughs) It's like, we have a DeLorean outside. You know, you could, as long as you have some petroleum, you could get there. Now, wouldn't you love to go back to your 16-year-old self and be like, dude, you only have one shot at this. Quit screwing it up. Anybody? Anybody like to go back to this? I would. Like, dude, you're you're 16. What are you doing? You only have one shot. You're going to screw life up. I know I'd like to do that. So if you're 16 here. Don't, don't be like me. You're just Don't screw this life up. <laughs> You're 16. I think God got a hold of me and, and, and did good things eventually. But my point is, I, I think I'd actually like to go back to my 18-year-old self when I was in college. Just smack me on the head a little bit. My point is this. There's no refuge from the judging God. We need to get that into our heads. There's no refuge from the judging God. There is only refuge in the judging God. And I want to talk more about that. It's so important. So, for so many of us, judgment can be scary. And, and I think when you read through this seven bold judgments, it's like, this is the scariest stuff in the Bible. Like, I, I don't know how to react to this. For so many of us, it could be scary. And, and except for the same exact guy, who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote the book of 1 John. And he, and he wrote this in 1 John 4. <coughs> Excuse me. God is love. Whoever loves, whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. Did you get that confidence in the day of judgment? In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I also want to get what John doesn't say in all of this. He doesn't say, hey, the way that you're destroying kids with your temper, God's just going to overlook that. You know? He doesn't say, oh, hey, you know, the way that you're just cheating on your taxes prolifically, yeah, God, he'll he'll overlook that for you. He doesn't say, like, hey, you know the way that you're hurting people at work with your attitude, and, you know, know, God's going to give you a pass because he loves you. John is saying that those who love God have been transformed and are made complete in him. And they're not the type of people that do that sort of thing. And when this happens, you're not trying to hide anything. It doesn't mean you always do well. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But, it, but as you're transformed by the love of God, it means that you're not an oppressor, hurting other people. And you won't be judged as such. It means that on the day of judgment, when judgment comes, we would have already acknowledged the sin in our life before God and not pretended like it didn't exist. It means that when God does judge come to judge the world that that perfect love that is being that we build our lives on will cast out any fear on judgment. I love that verse in 1 John because it in Revelation 16, it just judgment seems so scary. But what he's saying is, hey, have confidence on the day of judgment. If you are in Christ, if you're the type of person who's laid their life down and surrendered your heart and said yes to Jesus, then you're good. I mean, you're, God's blood has cleansed you, and He's going to transform you in that love. But that is work, by the way. Transformation is work. I, I can tell you. I became a Christian when I was 15 years old. And the day after I became a Christian, I was still a jerk. I was. I was a jerk to my friends. I, was, I mean, I was like a lighthearted jerk. The sarcastic ones that always tearing everybody down. You know, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's taken years to shed that off, and it's not completely gone. Some of you are laughing because you know me. It's like... It's not completely gone, and and I hope that it'll be completely gone one day because I do know in my mind that sarcasm is the lowest form of humor, but it's so fun, right? You know know what I'm saying? But it didn't happen right away. It's it's God getting a hold of you and saying, listen, I love that person. Why are you tearing them down? They're like one of my kids. And you know what happens when you beat up my kid, right? come after you with my wrath. You know what happens. This is God's judgment. This is God's wrath. For those who do fear God's judgment, well, there is something to fear. If you have unrepentant sin, in other words, if, you, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus and, and not asked for forgiveness for sin, and, and if, you're, if maybe you don't even realize it, but you, you've been sort of on this trajectory to follow this beastly character, judgment will go Poorly for you. So I want to just encourage you. I mean, this is the point of of all these judgments that you come to repentance. So I simply want to encourage you today. Maybe you're here and you've never given your life over to Jesus. Maybe you've never given that part of your your life, all that sinful stuff. You're like, no, that's just mine. Hold on to it. Maybe it's guilt or shame or something. and, And you've never just given that away and said, Lord, I need you to cover me with your blood. And I need you to cover me with your love. And, and in fact, I need to be transformed by you. Maybe you've never done that. I want to invite you to do that today, right where you're at, right in your seats. And, and, and maybe you're here today. I want to invite the band to come forward too, because we're about to go to the, the closing songs here. Maybe you're here and, and you've done that before, but you kind of fall back into that. You've been oppressed, and then now you're an oppressor. You've been oppressed. But now you're an oppressor. Maybe you've just sort of fallen back into that. I want to encourage you to ask Jesus to help you walk away from that. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, as we think about your judgment, it is scary. Or there is a thought where we don't like that. But Lord, we, I am convinced that what John wrote in 1 John is so true. That perfect love casts out all fear. And on the day of judgment, that if we are in you, then there should be no fear. <coughs> that your love will cast out that fear. Lord, if there's anybody here today who simply needs to say, uh, Lord, I surrender. I, I give myself up to you and, and I confess my sin. Lord, I pray that, that would happen right now just between you and them. And maybe there's some folks here who who simply need to say, Lord, I've surrendered before, I've done all that, but I need to confess some stuff because I've taken my freedom and I've oppressed other people with it. That stuff about talking harshly to my kids, yeah, that's me. That stuff about cheating on my taxes, yeah, that's, that's me. That stuff about just being a jerk sometimes, that's me. Lord, would you forgive me? Father, we give ourselves to you. And we ask that you would use this church to share the good news of your message with this world. Lord, that you would use each person here in a particular way to show the love and the redemption of your Son. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we sing this.